You're listening to Inside the Boardroom, powered by Onboard. I'm your host, Adam Wire. Today, we chat with Colonel David Fivecoat, founder of Fivecoat Consulting Group, who also served 24 years as a U.S. Army infantry officer. David will discuss how the Army compares to the boardroom, his role in gender integrating the U.S. Army Ranger School, and more. Great. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Inside the Boardroom, presented by Onboard. My name is Josh Palmer. I'm the head of content uh, for Onboard and your host today. Uh, today, we're really pleased to welcome back Colonel David Fivecoat. He's the uh, president and CEO of uh, the Fivecoat Consulting Group. Uh, David, welcome back to the show. Josh, thanks for having me. I'm really uh, looking forward to this opportunity to interact with you and the, the Onboard members. Um, for, for those of you who don't remember from the Atlas uh, show, um, I'm a retired U.S. Army colonel. Uh, I was an infantry officer, graduated from West Point, uh, served in Iraq three different times, served in Afghanistan as a, as a battalion commander, which is a person that leads an organization of about 700 people. And then my final job in the Army was I ran the Army's Airborne and Ranger School. And while I was running Ranger School, I oversaw the gender integration of Ranger School. And I'm sure Josh, Josh and I will talk more about that. For the since uh, 2017, I've ran my own company, the Five Co Consulting Group. Uh, we do business consulting uh, and executive coaching, and uh, looking forward to talk about some insights between military and the corporate world, which I've seen now in six years uh, of being out there in the corporate world, uh, and uh, some of the experiences that I that I bring from my military background. Absolutely. And we should also note that uh, David is also an author, uh, author of Grow Your Grit, which uh, encapsulates a lot of those uh, leadership experiences and uh, some of those uh, contrasts and comparisons between those different organizational setups is available on Amazon.com and on uh, David's website, the five code consulting group.com uh, available for purchase there. Uh, great book, by the way, David, thank you so much for, for putting all those thoughts uh, pen to paper. That's, that's not that's an accomplishment with it uh, in and of itself, obviously. Well, thanks, Josh. I, I appreciate the kind words. It, it was my COVID project. Uh, when we got shut down, I was like, hey, I've always wanted to write a book. And uh, there's no better time to do it than uh, when, uh, when I wasn't traveling. Absolutely. So yeah, uh, so David, you, you obviously, you, you were uh, more than uh, 36 months, 41 months, I think, is the, the total tally within uh, you know, various um, scenarios within uh, United States Army, including uh, places like Kosovo and, and uh, three tours uh, in Iraq and, and uh, tours in Afghanistan. Um, as you've had a long career in the Army, how did those different experiences or kind of uh, leading through competing goals and objectives, how did that define or, or develop your leadership style? Yeah, I think the, the one, there's, there's an incredible uh, Army tool, uh, which is called the in the army, we call it the commander's intent. Corporate world, we would call it the leader's intent. And this idea of an intent that a leader gives, and, and it uh, was prevalent in, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Kosovo, Bosnia, um, and stateside training. But this idea of a leader's intent, which provides a purpose or a why, key tasks that you have to uh, accomplish, and an end state, uh, or what does success look like, is an incredibly powerful tool uh, for anybody that's operating in an environment that's changing, uh, because having your team understand the why helps them adapt and improvise when conditions change. You know, you're going to set out with a plan to, to, to change your company, uh, and a year into the change, things 
will have evolved. The, the competition will have uh, maybe brought a, a new thing to market and folks understanding the why is such a powerful tool. The other thing that I found incredibly challenging for business folks to uh, implement is actually having the vision to, uh, to see what their end state is or what does success look like a year or two down the road. Um, for the military guys, it's pretty easy. You know, we say, hey, we want to seize this hill or secure uh, this town, uh, and this is the date that we want to do it. Corporate folks get a little bit uh, nervous about articulating what does success look like down the road. You know, whether it's profitability uh, or the implement of this change or whatever, uh, and actually articulating in that and putting that out in the environment, um, uh, at least from my perspective with the executives that I've worked with, that takes a little coaching for folks to get comfortable uh, with that that didn't, didn't come from a military background. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there's some some uh, some contrast there, as you mentioned. A, a military objective may be very black and white and, and well time box, whereas you know, obviously, within the corporate world or within nonprofit organizations or other board led organizations, that can be a lot more gray area and the steps can be less clear. Right. I I would argue that it was pretty gray. Uh, <laughs> our end state uh, was to increase the safety and security of the Paktika province. Um, mm. That's a little gray. It's not real, uh, <laughs> real clear uh, in, in many ways that, that corporate folks also struggle with uh, having a, a pretty gray uh, target as they move mm-hmm. forward. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and, and certainly we'll get into this a little bit more as we, we talk about Ranger School, but just in, in terms of um, you know, boards are, are by definition a hierarchical uh, organization. They you know, are responsible for the risk and the liability, the strategic objectives of the organizations they serve. Um, yet I know from um, just the, the recent conflicts that the, the U.S. Army or the U.S. military structure has a kind of a, a unique um, leadership style in with um, that um, the superiors to be that a general or a colonel uh, can trust their, um, you know, either their platoons or their squads to accomplish a goal with a little bit more flexibility and adaptability than, than other military organizations. Do you see some some um, correlations there with with kind of the corporate world in terms of just trusting your teams to to accomplish their tasks? Yeah, I think uh, one of the the biggest misconceptions out in the corporate world is uh, is that uh, the military is very hierarchical, which it is, but it's also sort of dictatorial and where uh, uh, an officer or commander says, go do this. And everybody goes out and does that. Yes, but it, uh, the military is much more collaborative than the movies, uh, or popular culture would sort of, uh, let you believe. Um, one of the biggest, uh, shocks to me was when I went to work in the Pentagon, uh, and the amount of collaboration that would happen in order to get something, uh, for the, for the Department of Defense, which of course is the largest employer uh, out there in the world or in the U.S. with two million over two million people working for it, uh, to actually have us go do something, you had to go make sure that every single uh, entity that had a stake in it agreed with the plan. And uh, running around and resolving issues and conflicts, but you know that the 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 lawyer said, "Well, we can't do this," and the Navy didn't want us to do that. And resolving those issues before it went to the Secretary of Defense for his signature uh, was an eye opener. That hey, this was such a collaborative kind of thing. But you're right; there is a lot of trust, and part of that is that why when we talk about the leader's intent, where you 
make sure that your people a level or two levels down uh, understand that why. And then you've got to trust them that they're going to use their imagination, their innovation, uh, their problem solving skills to help you accomplish that why. And it might be in a way that you don't really uh, expect. Now, one thing that the military also uses uh, that helps to uh, establish that trust and that empowerment is another tool called the back brief. And the back brief is just simply where a leader uh, like me, um, like, uh, you know, I would ask you to go do something and like, Josh, I need you uh, to, to go take your platoon and go take that hill. And then I would say, hey, can you back brief me on it? And you would come back and say, well, you asked me to take my platoon and go take that hill. And that way we both get an opportunity to hear it twice. It's not just coming out of my mouth. It is also coming back out of yours. So I under, so I can have that acknowledgement that, hey, you understand what is being asked of you and you're going to go out uh, and do it. It does take a little while longer. Uh, I know sometimes in the corporate environment, there isn't enough time to do that. But the military would spend a lot of time making sure folks understood exactly what we asked them to do especially if you're going to go put him in harm's way, uh, you want to make sure that you both have a common understanding of what, what's going to really uh, happen. And that helps build that trust that you were talking about, Josh. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really just uh, keyed in on, on that idea. Um, we just came off a, another episode and, and webinar um, in terms of uh, leadership skills with Lynn McDonald. Uh, it will be in the show notes for you uh, linked uh, but the, the webinar's topic was the art of asking questions. And I, I think that back brief uh, scenario is probably a, a great uh, example of that is if, you know, I've given you a goal or an objective, uh, you don't have yet to have all the information or maybe I, I didn't understand or I didn't provide you with all the information. Uh, did, did you uh, experience uh, good leadership uh, characteristics in, in people asking questions uh, during that back brief scenario? Yeah. Um, and it's especially powerful uh, when, like, let's say you've got five parts of the business or five parts of a military organization that you're trying to synchronize and everybody uh, asking good questions is just a way to improve the plan. Um, and you know, you're, it, it's another opportunity to resynchronize, re-coordinate uh, and make the plan work even better because you know, you've brought everybody together and you're sort of, once again, doing that collaboration and trying to come up with the best plan possible. One, uh, I'll take this with a corporate example. Uh, with, my, with my consulting group, I've been called in to help uh, different organizations plan better. And inevitably, I get called in and they're like, hey, uh, you know, we're ready to go do this, uh, you know, $50 million plan. Um, and, uh, we just want some help to, to make it better. And my first question that I always ask these groups is let's, let's stop for a second. I think we may have the cart before the horse. Let's ask, what are we really trying to solve here? And having the group, you know, a, a group of corporate, uh, folks sit down and talk about, Hey, what's the problem that we're really trying to solve and make sure that we have a common understanding of what that problem is uh, really changes the tone of that plan uh, because it, it, it gets everybody on the same sheet on, hey, what we're really trying to do is improve the distribution network in Arkansas. It's not necessarily when we want to buy a port facility. Um, 
oftentimes I see corporate groups because there is not, except in very large companies, there aren't, there isn't a dedicated planning team, which is typically most military organizations have a dedicated planning team. Uh, most corporate groups I've worked with don't. Um, somebody has been told to go figure out a plan by the CEO and they go out and they, they do that, but they do it alone by themselves without a collaborative kind of tool. And one of the things that any uh, business consultant can do, uh, we do it at TFCG, is come in and help bring everybody together, collaborate, one, figure out what we're trying to answer, then define, hey, what does success look like on down the road? That same sort of end state that we talked about in the, uh, in the uh, uh, leaders in 10. Yeah. And that, that idea of almost starting fresh, um, you know, this may be a goal that we've talked about for years or, or quarters, uh, but the, the ability for an outsider or someone who just practices a, you know, a kind of a, a beginner's mindset, so to speak, to come in and say, let's reset the table. Let's take it back to basics. Let's really understand what we're doing here. I, I think that's a, a great hallmark of, of leadership and, and question making there. Um, Speaking of, of great leadership, uh, obviously you you, you served um, through a, a number of conflicts, and, and and thank you for your service, by the way. Um, nice and then the uh, the kind of the the capstone to your your legacy within the uh, United States Army was uh, you were uh, I, I believe it was appointed to lead the U.S. Army Ranger School. Uh, for the audience, I'm just curious if you could uh, help describe how arduous uh, the, the ranger school programming is, or that training, uh, scenario is for, for the average recruit, let's say. Yeah. So, so the, yeah. So the U S army ranger school has been in existence since 1952. Uh, it produces about, uh, 1500 graduates a year. Uh, and the graduation rate is, um, about 50%. We would like to say it's like Navy seal training, but harder, uh, <laughs> Our training is 61 days in length. Uh, part of the reason, the way that we increase the stress on the students and try to replicate combat-like conditions is the students tend to have to operate on two to three hours of sleep a night, uh, and they only get two meals a day. The average ranger school student over the 61-day period, because it's a high physical uh, course, uh, they spend about uh, 40 to 45 of those days out in the woods conducting mock patrols, uh, mock raids, uh, mock ambushes. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a physical course. So the average ranger student loses about 20 pounds during their, their stay there. So it's the ranger school weight loss program. Uh, unfortunately, we don't uh, offer a, a, a civilian version, um, but folks come in. And in, in that environment, the, the great thing about it is there's rotating uh, leadership or chains of command. So at, one day you might be the leader of the organization. The next day uh, you might be the medic or the guy carrying uh, the machine gun. Uh, and so you learn every aspect of of, a, of being a small unit leader uh, in this kind of environment. And then you have to, when you get put into a leadership role, you're evaluated on that leadership. Uh, skills by a ranger instructor who's somebody that's graduated ranger school. He's been certified to be an instructor uh, and grades you against the standard of, hey, are you a good leader in this kind of environment? And can you motivate your peers when they're cold, wet, tired, and hungry? And so that stretches boundaries. Folks think they learn more about themselves and they become better leaders for folks uh, that are operating on, under a lot of pressure, uh, which then translates. We it, it it has translated to to building better leaders in combat environments since 1952 when it was was founded. 
And one thing I found interesting just in our, our previous conversations that the, the ranger school is, is kind of, uh, you mentioned this briefly, but it is uh, essentially not only a, a physical and, and mental exercise, but it's it's a leadership opportunity for many career military folks in, in that you go to ranger school is that you can come from any branch or you can come from any specialty within the army to, to go through ranger school. You can come from uh, any specialty uh, in the army. Uh, we... Uh have uh, foreign students uh, attend and sister services. So uh, I've known Marines that have graduated, Navy, uh, Navy SEALs that have graduated, uh, and then a bunch of uh, folks from, from different militaries like the, the Dutch military, um, uh, the Germans uh, sent some folks, the Italians sent some folks uh, that have graduated uh, from it. For the Army, for the most of the folks that come out from the Army are mainly infantry officers. Uh, second would be armor, which, uh, armor drives, uh, tanks. Um, but, uh, in some ways it, it would be equivalent within the army as, as sort of, um, it's one of those things that kind of sets you apart from your peers. It's, uh, so in a, uh, corporate analogy, it'd be considered like going to get your MBA. And so, uh, it's, it's an MBA in soldiering, uh, and being a leader in tough environments and, uh, uh, developing those skills and that's that skill set and obviously something that's critically important for anybody who wants to advance their career uh within the army if, if you were within that skill set um and then so we, we take it back to 2015 uh you're appointed the commander of the army ranger school and uh there's this huge organizational shift huge uh cultural shift uh within the, the united states army in that uh, for the first time, they said, we're going to introduce women. Uh, women can, can now participate in this program. Uh, can you walk us through just how big of a paradigm shift that was for that, that organization or that school? Yeah. Um, to, to take it back even a, a little bit further to provide some, some context, uh, based on the military's experience in Desert, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, uh, in 1994, there was enacted the, what was called the direct ground combat rule, which said women can serve in the military, but they cannot serve in certain uh, jobs and units. And those jobs and units tended to be infantry, armor, special forces, and some of field artillery, at least in the in the army. Um, and so, but every other job was open. Um, in 2013, uh, the administration said, "Hey, we're going to repeal the direct ground combat rule." And services you have until 2016 to come back and tell us, one, if there's any problems, and if you're going to ask for any exceptions to the rule that women can serve in uh, all jobs in all units. So like any good bureaucracy, the Army studied the problem for two years. And then in 2015, with only a year left to go, uh, they actually decided, hey, we're going to run this pilot program, and we're going to send women to the U.S. Army Ranger School, which is one of the toughest schools the army has for anybody. Uh, and so that was the pilot program uh, as the army was wrestling with this decision on, should we open up uh, all jobs and, and all units uh, to women? Uh, as you would ex expect, uh, the army is, is somewhat resistant to change. I would say that ranger school is even more resistant to change. Uh, very, uh, very resistant to change. And so we had this um, uh, order given to us from the Secretary of the Army to, to enact this change. Uh, and we set about uh, trying to do it to, to make sure it was a level, level playing field that anybody who could meet the standards 
whether they were from a sister service, foreign military, uh, male or female, uh, would have the ability to earn uh, the Ranger tab. Um, and um, a couple of things that helped us with this leading organizational change um, was the first thing that we, both myself and my sergeant major, we agreed on, and, and that would be sort of the CEO and the COO. Um, we said, hey, we are going to fight like heck to make sure that there is one standard uh, in this, and it was one ranger standard. Now, it, that was a pretty big deal because the Army age and gender norms physical fitness events. So depending on your age or sex, uh, the score you have to achieve to get 100% is different. So at 17 to 21, I had to score uh, a certain number of push-ups, sit-ups, in a, and run the two-mile run in a certain speed. And then when I was 40, it got a little bit easier. And so uh, advocating for one ranger standard was a huge uh, sort of deal. And we had to go get a couple of exceptions all the way up to the Secretary of the Army to enable uh, us to maintain one ranger standard. Um, the second thing that, uh, you, you know, really helped, and I, I would say anybody that's setting out uh, to increase diversity in an organization or any sort of change, there's a military term which is called mass. And for those of you who followed the Ukraine or Russian, the Ukraine and Russian war, you know, there's, there's always this talk, uh, talk about, you know, is Ukraine going to be able to amass enough tanks and armored fighting vehicles to punch through the Russian lines and liberate uh, Crimea? Well, mass is a military term. And, and one of the things that really helped uh, with the gender integration of Ranger School was that with this pilot program, uh, 19 women were... Uh, showed up on the first day of this pilot program uh, and eventually three women graduated uh, the course. And so when I talk to anybody about, about increasing the diversity and inclusion, um, uh, you know, that's one of my first uh, questions is, Hey, have, have, have you been doing it in onesies and twosies or have you gone out and recruited a, a decent sized cohort uh, so that there is a, a group, so it's, uh, you can, uh, you know, wrestle, you know, use that, that, that concept of mass, uh, to, to maybe, uh, cause the organization to change. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm just, I, I love the idea that, that, you know, 19 women showed up on the first day and, and three graduated, which is amazing. Um, what, what is the graduate graduation portion of the class now? Uh, if you've, if you kept tabs on that. Yeah, it's about 40% right now. And and since those three women graduated in, well, the first two graduated in August, the third graduated in October of uh, 15, uh, there's been uh, about another 140 women uh, that have graduated Ranger School. When you comp compare it to some of the other uh, special operations organizations, uh, the Green Berets have had uh, two or three women uh, earn, the, earn the Green Beret. Um, Navy SEALs have had zero uh, Air Force uh, Special Ops just had their first, um, uh, but those other organizations didn't employ the mass. And so the idea that, hey, anybody can meet the standard, as long as you are are rigorous and hold everybody to the same standard, and then employ mass uh, was, a, was a, a, at least for us, it was a, a powerful tool to, to cause organizational and, and survey that. 
that boards uh, say they're most effective at, at continuity. Uh, obviously, you know, long-term goals, long-term strategic visions uh, demand continuity, and you know, not only the, the the board, but also its 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 traditions and its culture. Uh, I, I'm curious, just from that Ranger School example, how were you able to uh, break through that that um, what may seem a, a defensive posture in that in that set of culture or norms that have been preserved? Um, just the idea of, of introducing this this radically new concept. Uh, you know, in outside society, it's not a radically new concept, but within a, a really storied and, and old institution like the Army, how are you able to um, kind of deal with the change and, and get people to, to understand the vision and, and um, uh, line up with the goal? Yeah, the the first thing that we did, uh, one of my goals was uh, to try to, to be as transparent as possible. And... Um, we did that two ways. The first way we did it was externally. Uh, and we opened up Ranger School, which traditionally had been a pretty closed environment. Uh, we, we opened up Ranger School to reporters from the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Defense One, uh, Army Times, and a couple, of, a couple others. And they followed this program around for six months. So for your CEOs out there, imagine that you had six reporters from all those organizations following you around for six months to the point that you had them on uh, your phone with uh, that they could text you when they saw anything that showed up, uh, rumor or innuendo uh, about it. I, I remember getting a, a, a text from Dan Lamoth as he had seen something on Facebook and wanted to ask me uh, about uh, what exactly was going on there. Um, and so that was the first way that we tried to break down some of the barriers and the resistance to change. One thing that I failed at as a leader um, is uh, the over-communication downwards into the organization. Um, and what we did at the end of the time, as the, as the three women were getting ready to graduate, myself and my sergeant major went around and we went two levels below us. So the CEO and uh, the CEO and the COO, two levels down. Uh, we went around and did town hall meetings with with all the folks that were two two levels down. It was a great opportunity for one for us to listen to some of the complaints and struggles that those those ranger instructors had had, uh, but it was an, also an opportunity for us to reinforce uh, our message and to help uh, decrease uh, some rumor and innuendo and replace it uh, with facts. If I had to do it all over again, and what I advise anybody that's leading this sort of big change, uh, 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 both organizationally and culturally, is I would have done that if I had to do it over again at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the change. Um, and I missed an opportunity because some of those folks uh, that were resisting that change uh, turned out to be the leaders that were between me and a couple levels down. You know, the older sort of folks that have stakeholders and maybe the older ways, uh, you know, surprisingly, uh, were ones that were resistors to the to that change. And so uh, using that opportunity uh, with your position as a leader, whether you're the board in charge of the board or in charge of the company uh, to go down and have town hall meetings and, and hopefully uh, deliver your message at a more grassroots level is a great way to re uh, decrease resistance to that change. Uh, yeah, and in, in in that in grow your grit, you you identify you know as as this story is an example of uh, there's there's four types of resistors to change. I, I was curious if you could just walk us through what those resistors look like and what your approach 
is for for each of those. Yeah. Um, so so before I went into this, uh, I hadn't really thought about big organizational change, and um, I I was sort of convinced that change was sort of binary. You know, folks were either for it or against it, and as soon as you you know sort of rolled your change out, they either settled into the resistant the the folks that were against it or the the folks that were for it. Uh, what I found is that a better model uh, for anybody that is leading organizational change is more of a sine curve. And underneath the sine curve from left to right, you have uh, active resistors to change, then passive resistors to change, then passive supporters of the change, and then active supporters of the change. And the, the active resistors to the change will be smart enough that they won't get fired but they're the ones that are going to slow roll your initiatives, figure out ways to continue doing it the old way, um, and uh, you know generally are not helping. The passive resistors, uh, both passive resistors and passive supporters, are frankly, you know, both at the point where they're trying to watch which way the wind blows and trying to see, hey, you know, is the CEO going to get fired for trying to enact this change and we're going to go back to the old ways, or is this the new way that we're going? And once we see that it is the new way we're, it's going, we'll jump on board. Then your active supporters are, of course, those that, hey, you know, this is the this is what we need to do. Um, you know, this is this is this is the way uh, we need to go. And I think a better model for for any leader that is trying to lead big change. And you know, you know, perfect example is uh, I would just watch the movie BlackBerry uh, last night. Um, it's about the the folks that were in uh, research in motion and how they rolled out really the first uh, you know true smartphone. Um, but uh, you know, there were resistors to what they were trying to do as they evolved the company. Um, and just this idea of trying to move folks 10% to the right every year and trying to get those re active resistors to become passive resistors, some of your passive resistors to become passive supporters, and some of your passive supporters become active supporters is a much better model, especially if, some, if, if there's something that you're doing that's going to be controversial and it's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of angst uh, over it. Um, so that, that's, that's something to think about. Going back to your earlier example, and you mentioned, uh, you know, I wish I had done the the, the town halls in a, in a three part series, uh, and, and uh, with the, the that model of the the four types of uh, resistors or supporters, uh, do have you ever found an active resistor to be helpful to the cause? Maybe they're throwing a rock in your plan or, or uh, poking a hole in, in what might be a, a you know an undefined objective. Have you ever found support or kind of a, a better way through conversations with that active resistor? I will say that a, a better example that we found, um, so the short answer is, is I, I don't have a good uh, example of that uh, active resistor because, of course, they're kind of they're trying to make sure that they don't get fired. So they're kind of quiet uh, and they will only operate on the margins. Uh what we did find was finding peers that were active supporters and using them to do peer communication to their peers. And also uh, we used one to communicate uh, out on Facebook to some of the, the social uh, groups that are out there. And, and one thing also I think uh, all your folks need to understand is that you know, in the old days, the resistance to change would uh, coalesce around the, the quote unquote water cooler or down at the corner bar after work. 
your resistors to change are going to be out there and organizing on social media, whether it's a text group or a WhatsApp group uh, or uh, on a Facebook page um, or or something like that. They are going to be communicating their their displeasure with the change and trying to you know gather others to their side uh, out there. And, and for us, this was 2015, so a large number of the resistors showed up on as anonymous accounts on Facebook. Um, and so we used one of the active supporters uh, to go communicate in these fa- these closed Facebook groups uh, because he was already a member of them and try to inject fact into that uh, that debate. Uh, those were certainly ways uh, that that we were able to 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 bring that up. The other thing I would say with the active resistors, maybe it wasn't an active resistor, but folks that believed some of the the far fetched stories that were coming out of different entities that that were part of, of Ranger school. Um, it was helpful to hear that folks were actually believing them, even though they were part of Ranger school. Cause some of them, like I dismissed, like there was the one guy that said, Oh yeah, you know, the women couldn't have gone through Ranger school. You know, they don't look skinny enough. Uh, the army must've done this in a warehouse uh, against a green screen, just like the, the moon landings and like, okay, I'm dealing with that kind of far-fetched rumors. Uh, but folks actually believe that and helping them to say, Hey, look, you know, where do you think we've got this warehouse that we're doing this? And you think that all these other people would keep it quiet that if we were really doing this, that, uh, um, but, uh, those were sort of the, some of the rumors and stuff that we had to deal with. Yeah. Um, I think that, 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 that example of, of using your, your peer network is, is a great example for anybody who's leading a board chair, uh, or leading the board through the chair, or uh, you know, even a committee chair of, um, and especially, I think your example kind of uh, underscores this a bit. Is that um, uh, a leader communicating to to somebody, you know, a, a director on the board or a manager in the organization? That communication is a very different scenario. Uh, there's authority, there's respect, there's tradition, there's all those things. But a, a peer-to-peer communication is, is a completely different. Uh, maybe there's less resistance. Maybe they they have a little bit more openness to to hearing feedback from a peer versus a a, a supervisor, or a, a superior. Uh, is that what you found with when you kind of tapped that peer network? Yeah, and and it's challenging to find that 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 peer because there's personal risk involved. You know, same with your CEOs and board chairs that are leading leading change. There's risk. Um, I've been working with this one guy. Um, with a company that was pushing a lot of change. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was let go. Um, and, uh, you know, there, the appetite for all the change that he was pushing just wasn't there in the company. And then, of course, the folks, and I'm just a consultant, so, you know, I'm not in that company, but I'm sure the folks that were, quote unquote, his 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 people, the folks that were, were seen as big supporters of him, uh, are struggling a little bit in that company right now because there was some personal risk involved. He, he got let go. And then because they were supporters uh, it's also sort of challenging to find those folks that are willing to take that personal risk and, and stand up uh, and support the change. Yeah. Um, I, I think this, that that's a great segue in, into the, the topic of your book is, is, is grit, you know, uh, perseverance through change, through changing environments um, how do you how do you define grit in terms of leadership? I, I'm just curious what your your 
your elevator pitch for grit. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the simple piece is the will to persevere to achieve long-term goals. Uh, and I, my definition of grit differs slightly uh, from anybody that's read Angela Duckworth's book. Uh, her, she says it's, it has both uh, passion and perseverance. And I, disagree, I agree that passion helps uh, and makes uh, having grit uh, a heck of a lot easier. But there's some things in, that, that we all do that we don't particularly have a passion uh, for. And you, sometimes you just have to have that will or that, uh, you know, that ability to show up and do the work uh, over and over and over again, you know, whether it's, it's going to the gym or walking your dog or doing whatever. Um, I suspect you're not the most passionate dog walker, but you take the dog out every day for, for, for a walk, Josh. Yeah. That's more, more discipline than grit, I think. Right. Right. Um, so it, I, I'm curious, kind of with that that previous example, where you know the the the, uh, the leader and, and his um, his peer group or his uh, active supporters um, tried to persevere but were unsuccessful. What do you what do you think in terms of you know uh, grit and that perseverance and, and not achieving the goal? How does how does that change your grit or how does that change your 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 attitude towards maybe the next goal? Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> One of the things that I that I think is uh, that's sort of different about me is I I have the ability to uh, you know get knocked down and then turn around and get back up again. Um, went through you know a huge transition in in 2017 when I left the army and 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 started uh, working for a, for a, a, another company. Uh, I got fired from that company and so started. Uh, TFCG. Um, and so that ability to take your lumps and turn around and get back up and, and keep doing it. The other sort of converse of grit, of course, is knowing when to quit and knowing when to throw in the towel, knowing that it's uh, you know n- not helpful um, to continue to persevere, that uh, you know this relentless pursuit of something isn't isn't being helpful. Um, I, I think the biggest thing on both sides, on whether to quit or whether to persevere, uh, is is spending some time to understand your own, certainly with your personal goals, understanding your personal purpose or what your why really is. What makes you special and what is your why um, that's out there that that is, is driving you and helping you uh, move forward? Um, the other huge thing and this is a a big part of my uh you know it 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 sort of tags in with the planning stuff but also spending time thinking about what your goals are and i think one of the things that i see a lot with the the folks that i executive coach with is in the corporate world they spend a lot of time building smart goals but when it comes to their personal life they don't spend any time uh, trying to define one what success looks like and what's the time frame that they're trying to do this. And so, um, I know there's there's this stat about you know we're heading we're heading towards New Year's. I'm sure folks will be out there doing their New Year's resolutions. Supposedly, 160 million Americans uh, do uh, New Year's resolutions every year. Interestingly, when I ask that question of groups that I'm talking to, I get like two hands. I'm like I'm the only person that does 
New Year's resolutions? Uh, I don't believe that, but um, uh, but you know, folks with their New Year's resolutions say, "Hey, I'm going to go to the gym more," and you know, I'm a big gym rat, and um, you know, the funny thing is, you know, December you'd see almost nobody in the gym. January first, the gym is packed by by uh, by Valentine's Day. Uh, the gym is back to the usual suspects that were there uh, in, in December. But you see that because one, they don't say, "Hey, I'm going to go to the gym three days a week, uh, and I'm going to, you know, set that habit and keep it going for the whole year." And then they also aren't honest with themselves on what's going to drop off the calendar, um, because, uh, and that's that's the whole thing. You know, we're all busy. You know, whether you're a busy executive uh, uh, or the lowest person in an organization, your life is busy. You've got kids, you've got family, you've got work, uh, and you've got to be honest on, hey, what am I taking off the plate in order to be able to enable this new habit or new goal that I'm trying to to reach actually happen? Nine times out of 10, you know, the type A's are all like, oh, I'm going to sleep less. I'm going to go, I'm only going to get four hours of sleep. And uh and that's also why they end up giving up on the goal because you know they're they're dog tired and and and, and can't see the way to get to that goal. Yeah, it, it, and I think this 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 wraps into some of the points of your book was um, um, you know identify that the goal and and create the next steps to reach that goal. I think uh, what so many of us do, especially around New Year's, or maybe it's even you know the first of the year for a you know new organization, new budget, they say we're going to go. You know, we're going to get that North Star metric or we're going to go, uh, I'm going to be, you know, really ripped and, and lean. Um, I just have to go to the gym. But there's no next steps point or there's there's less there's fewer uh, defined steps in those next steps to get to that goal. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. But <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm a huge fan. Uh, you know, the Army's big on backwards planning. You know, you envision, you know, you want to be ripped and lean by March 31st. Uh, and, and there's a whole bunch of steps that you've got to take to get there. And, you know, I would say, you know, one, it's, uh, shop better at the grocery two don't eat out as much three cut down on alcohol four uh, you know, go work out and, and five, get more sleep or, or whatever your, your, your set is, uh, to get there. But most folks don't spend the time on their personal goals to sort of lay that out. and I, I, I get it. I, I understand it intuitively because there's so many things out there in the world right now. You know, do you do Wordle today? Do you, uh, you know, you know, do you yeah. take your kids to school? Do you walk the dog? Do you, you know, there's so many competing things that it's tough to to lay out that plan uh, to get you to that goal. I'm curious if, you know, just through your sessions with executive leaderships, I'm sure you, you work with boards and chairs and directors. Um, how does grit show up in the boardroom, whether that's uh, the board itself as a unit or with the individual directors? Where have you seen grit really well exemplified inside the boardroom? So I've worked a lot uh, with the CEO of a, of a smaller company. Um, and um, the, the company as it has grown has cluged together a bunch of companies uh, and then uh, spent time trying to make one system uh, across the companies, uh, and then uh, you know they're owned by private equity. They're eventually gonna they're they're posturing themselves to sell. They you know they're fixing several problems, and that grind to 
cause that organizational change af- off across the 15 uh, locations that they're at uh, is tough. And, you know, I, you know, you, you know, some days when I talk to the CEO, he's fired up other days, he, you know, it feels like, you know, he, he, you know, he went uh, 12 rounds with Mike Tyson. Um, <laughs> you know, you Has know. anybody gone 12 rounds with Mike Tyson? <laughs> Not, not many. I should have said one round with Mike Tyson because that that tended to be about the, the at least in his prime that was that was his uh, sort of standard uh, amount that he fought. But um, you know th- that idea to hold on to the goal and continue moving towards that goal despite the ups and downs is, is incredibly tough. And um, you know the, the board that that he works with. Um, you know, set some pretty audacious goals for him uh, to sort of work towards, and and, and that's that's challenging. Um, uh, I I think uh, you know that's what I, that's what I see, and and um, uh, it isn't easy. Uh, I I think understanding the why of doing it and then having solid goals. Uh, helps him sort of navigate forward uh, despite the challenges there. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk about active resistors. Um, I, I think any organization that's gone through a merger or acquisition uh, absolutely knows the idea of, of an active resistor. But I, I, I like that example because you have both the, you know, the internal existing organization and the new organization, you're going to have active resistors on both sides of that, um, that divide and, and, merging and, and defining and getting both those organizations to a new higher goal uh, is certainly a, a, a very difficult scenario from my experience, at least. Great. Yeah. Well, and, and I've seen companies that I, I, I'm a big proponent when that you do a merger that you, you pull the bandaid off as, pa- as fast as possible. Uh, because, um, you know, I saw companies that had merged and three years later, they were still running two different email systems and stuff. And it's like, Yes, you've merged a name, but you're not really one entity. You're still operating as as two entities, and and the quicker that you can change that, because you know the the merger itself is a big enough uh, sort of event. You might as well pack all that in there. It doesn't help to slow roll some of the change for months later. It just makes I, I think it makes it a lot tougher. Yeah. And, and the, the tagline that, that came to me in, in, in my experience with that, that really stuck was, was win as one. Uh, we may be, or may have previously been two different organizations, but we're going to win as, as one organization going forward. Great. David, is there, is there anything else that uh, we haven't asked or that you want to, you want to touch on here or uh, just any parting notes of knowledge or wisdom from your experience? Uh Not really. I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, it went a bunch of different directions uh, than my uh, the, the the typical uh, podcast I go on, uh, and I appreciate the very the very thoughtful questions, Josh. Um, and, and I hope some of the insights that that I've seen uh, from the corporate world uh, help help folks uh, as as they uh, navigate and move their companies forward. Absolutely.